All right. Hello, everybody. Um, so as people trick in, trickle in, uh, just a couple ground rules. Um, so if you've been here before, you know these, but uh, prior, you can ask your question by raising your hand, in which case you get to get mini famous uh, by asking your question over the webcam. And uh, keep in mind that however you ask your question, you should ask it with uh, it in mind that eventually these videos get split up into small Q and A's that go out publicly. So, and obviously there's other people in the room. So in both cases, uh, keep in mind the amount of privacy that you want when pre presenting yourself. Uh, you can ask your question by raising your hand, in which case you can share your webcam and ask in person, so to speak, face to face. Um, and I'll do those first, but, uh, and then I'll go to the Q and a box. Uh, please don't ask questions in the chat. If you want to jump in uh, and add something to something to whatever someone's saying when they're on the webcam, the chat is a good place to do that. Um, but don't ask questions there. Ask questions in the Q and a box in the Q and a box. If you want to jump in on someone's question, you can just reply to it. Um, and then ask your most in question most important question first to make sure that the one that you care most about, I actually spend full amount of time on it in case we run out of time as we get to your other questions. Uh, and then you can ask anonymously, but I will treat all anonymous questions as one person because I'm going to make sure that I get through, you know, everyone asks the first question before I start to get the second and third questions. And so, um, you will probably get your question answered sooner if you are not anonymous. Um, but those are the options. Okay, so we have a couple people with their hands raised. I'm going to go to Danny M first. So, Danny, are hey you Chris, good. E hey Chris, good evening. Good evening, Danny. How are you doing? Excellent. I hope you are as well. Thank you. So I wanted to get your thoughts on phosphatidylserine supplementation and its effect on coagulation for someone who's not specifically on a blood thinning agent, is already taking 200 micrograms per day of vitamin K2, but does not want to increase clotting risk. Uh, so I don't know anything about phosphatidylserine supplementation and clotting. Uh, what have you read about it? Just I, I started looking into it and saw a couple of references to it potentially having an effect on coagulation, specifically increasing it. And I was hoping maybe you had some why, experience why with that. Are you, why are you trying to use it in the first place? Um, for sleep and or possible positive effect on brain health and function. Um, so, okay, so I... I just, I don't know anything about it. I just looked at uh, Examine's page on it and they don't have anything there. Um, I'm going to look on PubMed real quick to see if anything comes up. So let's see, there's... 21 papers that come up if I search PubMed for phosphatidylserine clotting randomized. Um, a lot of these are reviews, so we can skip over them. Uh, 
some of this looks like mechanistic stuff. So I'm, I guess I might as well share my screen just so everyone can see what I'm looking at. Um, oh, I'll share, I can share the tab. That's best. Okay, so can you see on the screen tissue factor residues that putatively interact with membrane phospholipids? I think that's what everyone should be looking at. So this looks, yeah, yeah. So this looks like um, that's not on supplementation. That's on uh, mechanistic concern. So I think we can skip over that too. So, um, it actually looks like. That's what most of this stuff is. Um, let me see if I can narrow this down to supplement or supplementation. Um, so just looking at PubMed, it looks like the only uh, stuff that pops up is mechanistic stuff about the fact that phosphatidylserine, like as this is saying, is a scaffolding for the coagulation factors. Um, so did you read studies that show that the supplementation is actually increasing clotting or is what you read just reasoning from the known role of phosphatidylserine in supporting the coagulation factors? To be honest, Chris, I'm not sure. It was yeah. kind of okay. a quick well, read I, reference. I mean, so I'll just say that ultimately I'm not familiar with the topic enough to really give you a super confident answer, but upon quickly perusing what's out there, I'm going to guess that that's largely mechanistic speculation, which is fine. Um, but that sort of means that there's probably not a, any good answer to whether it does increase the risk of clotting. Um, I guess what I would do if I were to spend considerable time on it uh, would be to look for randomized trials of phosphatidylserine for other purposes and see if clotting's mentioned in any of the adverse effects in those papers. Um, but that would be a bit of a project. Uh, so... Sorry, I can't give you a better answer, but that's all I can give you tonight. Yeah, no problem, Chris. That gives me a pointer that I can follow, so I appreciate it. Cool. All right. Um, stop share. Christine is next up. I did that right. There we go. Hi, Mom. Are you there? You need to unmute your your uh Okay. Hello? No. You can hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. 
Okay, I didn't have a question. I just I might have accidentally raised my hand. Oh. So I can't even think oh, okay. of one right now, but thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That was my mom asking a question by accident. Uh, all right. So we're going to go to the Q&A box. Anon Anon says, uh, oh, I don't need these anymore. Anon Anon says, hi, Chris, what diet would you recommend for hungry teenage boys in terms of macros for each meal and also food groups? Could you also please comment on one, the maximum number of eggs they can eat per day two, the maximum amount of protein per meal? Three is protein powder, for example, beef, beef protein isolate safe for them. Four, any ideas how to safely satisfy their hunger on a budget and without overdoing carbs? Many thanks. My name is Steph O.D. I can't change the Anon setting. <laughs> okay. Hi, Steph. Um, so I don't really... I, I mean, I, my advice for general macros is quite limited and has nothing to do with age for the most part, with the exception of minor tweaking of like protein requirements uh, as people get older. <laughs> um, so I guess I would say whether teenage boys or teenage girls or almost anyone else, then the only macro that you need to really regulate in any kind of quantitative sense is protein. Uh, and you really don't need to think about maximums of protein or eggs or any of this other stuff. Uh, you really just need to make sure that they're getting the minimum amount of protein. And so I would say that just generally speaking, the the good range to be for protein for almost anyone is between a half a gram to a gram of protein per pound of body weight, assuming that you measure your body weight in pounds for people who are measuring it in kilograms, um, then, you know, basically just double those numbers. Uh, so, you know, what one to two grams per kilogram of body weight, uh, which is, you know, not quite exactly equivalent, but almost the same. It's close enough. Um, and then you really want to just make sure that they're getting all their vitamins and minerals in, which is going to require you to eat a mix of foods. And so obviously, if you only eat protein, uh, especially if you only eat protein powder, you're not going to get all your vitamins and minerals in. But I think that if you you know, if you focus first on getting in the good, in the range of minimum protein intake, and then you focus on getting all your vitamins and minerals in, then you wind up, uh, you sort of wind up automatically eating a mix of carbs and fat. And there, you know, you might find that some people do better on higher carb, lower fat, or higher fat, lower carb. Uh, but I think that that you know that's not as important as making sure someone's getting all their vitamins and minerals in, and particularly for teenage boys, then you know just with a rapid rate of growth and high activity and hormonal changes kicking in, the demand for nutrients is generally elevated in teenagers as a proportion of their um, 
you know, w- whether in daily intake or even as a proportion, uh, like relative to their caloric intake, most likely. Um, and that's especially true if they're going through a growth spurt. So I would say, you know, I, I would for the same thing as I would say for an adult, the best way to go about looking at whether you're getting your vitamins and minerals in is to use an app such as Chronometer and just do enough dietary analysis, you know, cover enough days that you are getting representative of representative view of your typical diet. So if they're eating the same thing all the time, then you could probably just do three days, but they're probably not eating the same thing all the time. So you might want to do, uh, do like two weeks worth of data if you find that that's what it takes in order to get all their sort of cyclical food changes represented. Um, and see if they're getting their vitamins and minerals in. I would Google uh, Master John how to measure your vitamins and minerals because I have a video there on that we should probably pop up in the first place on Google. Um, it's about how to avoid uh, false zeros in your data for chronometer. Uh, so you do have to be mindful of that. But as long as you are making sure that you ensure the data accuracy through a few simple steps that I outlined in that video, you should get a pretty good view of the vitamins and minerals. And as long as you make sure that you're hitting all of the targets, and I would be you know, less lenient about maybe not quite getting all the way up to the, to the targets for teenage boys, just because I do expect them to be less able to get away with modest deficits in a nutrient when they're growing a lot. Um, but you just let the fat and carbs fall where they will and adjust the diet. If you need to meet those micronutrient goals, um, and then with the eggs, I, I don't see any point in ca- putting a cap on the number of eggs they can eat in a day. Uh, I would, you know, if they're, I think you're going to hit a cap in the number of eggs they're willing to eat in a day before you would hit a cap in the safe number of eggs a day. Uh, so that's what I think. Uh, okay, so protein powder, isolate, <clears throat> that's fine. But just as with an adult, I wouldn't use it for a huge portion of your calories I, or of your protein, I mean, which is ironic because right now I'm, I'm actually getting most of my protein from protein powder. Uh, but that's a very temporary thing while I carve out the last few pounds of, of weight loss that I'm uh, that I'm targeting. So I'm generally speaking for, you know, for general dietary concerns, I would say it's probably fine to get 20 to 40 grams per day of protein for protein powder, but I wouldn't do more than that because at some point you're rather quickly going to be pushing out nutritious foods. And I generally would say also that if you're not specifically trying to do something with your body composition, you probably shouldn't be using protein powder that much because what for, um, you know, protein powder is a very good way to 
boost your protein up when you have a difficult time meeting your needs with food, which might, which is going to become more relevant if you're tr trying to gain uh, hypertrophy, muscle growth, or you're trying to lean out or something like that. But if you're just trying to eat right, then, you know, you can, there's no harm in getting a small amount of your protein from protein powder. I would cap that at, like I said, 20 to 40 grams. Um, but it's not, you know, it's, it's always better to eat food. In terms of a budget, uh, I'm not... I'm not the best person to ask about budget stuff. Um, but I mean, generally speaking, lentils are real cheap and very nutritious. So, but I, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to comment on how to optimize for budget without knowing the details of, what your finances are and what specifically you're having trouble with the price on um, and what you mean by overdoing the carbs, because obviously lentils have a bit of carb in them, but you know, if you're going to, I guess it depends what you're replacing, right? So if you're replacing meat with lentils, your fats going down, your proteins going down, your carbs are going way up. But if you replace bread with lentils, your protein's going way up and your carbs are coming down. Um, and so in particular, you know, be hard to meet your protein requirement all with lentils, but lentils go a lot further towards your protein requirement than potatoes and especially bread and rice do. Uh, and they are pretty cheap and, um, and they're you know very nutritious compared to a lot of other carby foods. And then of course you you can you choose the quality of food that suits your budget. So I would prefer the you know organic grass-fed beef. Uh, but if you can't afford organic grass-fed beef, then uh, I I wouldn't be so ideological about it that I wouldn't buy lower quality beef, you know. So I think you should buy the best quality food that you can afford. Um, but I think it's okay to sacrifice some quality issues and not be ideological about it if you have trouble affording the type of quality that you would prefer. You know, it's if you're talking about the difference between eating meat, vegetables, and and uh, legumes compared to eating chips and microwavable ramen noodles uh, and, you know, cake, then you're getting, you don't need to eat organic heirloom lentils uh, grown in regenerative, regenerative uh, agriculture practiced soil. Um you know, if you just go from cake and chips to lentils, you are achieving huge things in the improvement in your food quality. Um, so uh, I think legume, so to summarize on the budget, I think using legumes in as a major staple in the diet will help get you to a good place with vitamins and minerals, 
a good and uh, towards a higher protein than you would get with other carby foods and with cheap junk food. Um, but I would balance that with also trying to save money on making reasonable compromises on the uh, grade of quality of foods that you would make so that you are also getting the other things that you need in because you're not going to get everything you need in with lentils. So anyway, I hope that helps, Steph. Uh, thank you very much for your question. Jeff Husby says, taking more than 5,000 I use of vitamin D at one time makes my teeth sensitive. Yet a vitamin D test recently had me at a deficiency level. So it can't be because I've had too much. I would take more at a time to get my level up faster, but I can't. I'm assuming it's affecting my calcium homeostasis somehow, and that manifests as too sensitivity. But do you know if there is any literature discussing this, or do you have any ideas why this might be? Well, I, you know, I can only offer you guesses, but the first thing that I would say is, are you using the testing algorithm outlined in testing nutritional status the ultimate cheat sheet? Because uh, if you look at that, you'll see that my approach to testing vitamin D status is more sophisticated than what is used by almost everyone else. And so if you're not measuring PTH and you're not measuring calcitriol at a minimum, then I don't think that you should be so quick to interpret that you're in a deficiency state. Um, now that said... Off the top of my head, I don't really know why vitamin D would directly cause tooth sensitivity, but, and I'm not a dentist. And so I don't know everything there is to know about um, tooth sensitivity mechanisms, but a couple things that occur to me. So one thing that would occur to me would be that you could be depleting your vitamin K levels and you could be worsening your tooth calcification. Um, but another thing that, you know, is another sort of opposite thing that could be relevant is if you are getting some slight helper, hypercalcemia, that maybe that is impacting the nerves in your teeth in some negative way. And if I could make my guess a little bit more wild than that, uh, I think it's conceivable that if you are getting some kind of slight hypercalcemia, that your body could uh, possibly adjust to that with like slight alkalinization to try to control the ionic calcium level and that that might the acid-base disturbance might also impact tooth nerves in some way, but I'm heading, you know, pretty deep into speculation land here. So, I guess the what I, the way I would approach that would be, first of all, make sure that you're getting your PTH and calcitriol levels tested at the same time as your 25 OHD. Not a bad idea to throw in total anionic calcium and phosphorus in there just for good measure. And make sure that your interpretation of the 25-OHD is actually supported by those other measurements. Um, second thing would be, what happens if you co-supplement with vitamin K 
vitamin K2, can you, can you impact this? So, and it's not just, you know, do you also, you also have to consider, um, other interacting nutrients. Uh, so particularly the, the other three fat soluble vitamins, I guess K2 would be at the top of that list. Then second tier in that would be A and E. Uh, and then third tier would be magnesium. And then other things could come after that. But I would, you know, play around with what happens if you tweak the ratios and co-supplementations in there. Can you prevent that effect? But I would do that after characterizing your, making sure you're characterizing your blood testing correctly. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for your question. Hope that helps. All right. Alicia C says, does a pattern of in-range but lowish Genova urine kynorenate and xantharinate and highish quinolinate and picolinate make you think less about B6 and more about niacin production or inflammation? I'm having trouble getting a doctor's order for the HDRI niacin number test, and thus I'm wondering if any hints on niacin could be gleaned from these organic acid test markers. So for anyone listening now or later during the uh, further distribution of the video, just as some background here, um, kynorenate, xantharinate, and quinolinate are three tryptophan metabolites that are sequentially produced on the pathway that can either be used to synthesize niacin or vitamin B3 from tryptophan or can be used for the complete combustion of tryptophan in the citric acid cycle. And so generally speaking, this pathway is not regulated by the need for niacin and is regulated by the, by the need to completely dispose of tryptophan However, it is regulated by estrogen. And so I do think it's possible and poorly recognized that estrogen acts as a signal for the need for niacin. And that in women, there is some degree of regulation according to the need for niacin. Whereas in men, there's not. And that the typical textbook explanation that it's not regulated by the need for niacin might be derived from research being sort of biased towards the way it works in males. Um, and then inflammation also upregulates this pathway. So estrogen and inflammation are the two things that upregulate the pathway. Now, the question would be why... So typically what you see in vitamin B... So vitamin B6 is needed at three steps during this pathway... And those are the steps that metabolize kynorinate, xantharinate, and quinolinate. Um, and typically, you would see xantharinate and kynorinate um, being elevated earlier in B6 deficiency, and you would need a more severe B6 deficiency to see quinolinate. But Alicia is asking about the sort of opposite, the inverse of that. Why would the xantharinate and kynorinate be on the lower side, whereas the quinolinate being on the higher side in that series? Um, 
Now, I think, you know, you're saying lowish and highish. I think it's possible that these just don't mean anything really. So, you know, it, you don't, if something's not out of the range and if it's not real close to the range on these markers, um, particularly with Genova's range, you know, because Genova's using like a tighter definition of normal than what uh, you would get on a on a bigger, you know, a bigger sort of conventional lab um, already. And so if these are like, you know, if you're talking about like second quintile versus fourth quintile, it might not... You, it might not mean anything. Um, you know, by contrast, if it's getting close to the edges of the ranges and then they keep diverging so that, you know, it looks like you're progressively on your way to xanthorinate and kynorinate just getting lower and lower and quinolate getting higher and higher, um, then that probably does mean something. But I don't, I don't really see why that would change the interpretation to, you know, away from B6 and towards inflammation or niacin, because uh, as far as I know, and, and this might be, maybe this just reflects, you know, that I don't know enough about the details of how this pathway can be differentially regulated. But as far as I know, um, inflammation and and estrogen are basically just going to upregulate the pathway starting at the top. And so they're going to funnel more tryptophan through the pathway. But if the reason that quinolinate is going up is because more tryptophan is being funneled through the pathway due to inflammation or estrogen, then that doesn't really help explain why kynorenate and xanthorenate aren't elevated at all. Um, whereas I think the reason B6 tends to act in that sequential order is probably because of the af relative affinity of the enzymes for B6. So it's probably just the case that the lower enzymes in the pathway that metabolize the quinolinate have a higher affinity for B6 and so that is what makes you need a higher um, degree of deficiency in order to see the quinolinate rise typically. Um, so you know, and with niacin, you would think if there's something downstream from this pathway impacting niacin production. Like let's say not niacin production is inhibited. Um, I don't see why that would raise quinolinate specifically because the normal use of this pathway is not to make niacin. It's actually to completely break down tryptophan and metabolize it in the citric acid cycle. So I don't think any of those things really offer a good explanation. I think it's quinolinate does have um, it does have. Uh, excitatory effects as a neurotransmitter. So I think it's possible that there might be regulation on that basis. So, you know, you might have, you might be trying to gain uh, excitatory effects from the quinolinate in some kind of regulated fashion. 
Um, or you might just have an idiosyncratic manifestation of those markers. Uh, you know, just because you typically see quinolinate rise last doesn't mean that it's going to rise last in everyone. And so, uh, so you know, to summarize, I think I would first look at how divergent these are. So again, if you're looking at like if by highest and lowest you mean second and fourth quintile, then I wouldn't read too much into it. But if it really seems like the quinolinate is on its way out of the range and the xanthorinate and kinorinate are in the first quintile and they're either going nowhere or it looks like, you know, over two tests they keep going lower and lower. So you actually have a real divergence. If either of those things are true, then I would say you might want to interpret it uh, as being meaningful. But it uh i don't th i don't see why niacin production inflammation or estrogen should offer any coherent explanation for why that pattern would diverge it could just be idiosyncratic and you might need more b6 period in which case you might want to measure your plasma b6 and see what that says and you might also want to just see if supplementing with b6 changes those markers um Or, uh, or it could be something regulated deliberately on the for your balance of neurotransmitters. In which case, I don't know what to do about that, but that might, you know, offer some explanatory power. So, anyway, I hope that helps, Alicia. Thank you for your question. Heather Chandler says, "What potential downsides would you expect from using prescription calcitriol to increase calcium absorption and bone mineral density?" Uh. Well, I guess, I mean, the obvious downsides are A, calcitriol has an extremely short half-life. And so you're not going to get your calcitriol levels up apart, you know, over any kind of reasonable period of time except with regular treatments. Uh, so that's sort of like, um, it's a higher... Um, it's a higher, it's more labor intensive, higher maintenance approach. Um, and then, of course, you're going to be m more vulnerable to hypercalcemia because you are overriding your body's natural regulation of calcitriol production. Um, my, you know, my perspective is if you've been prescribed calcitriol then the prescribing doctor should be able to give you everything you need about how to manage that without the risk of severe side effects such as hypercalcemia. And I'm sure they're giving you a dosing regimen that's going aimed at being effective uh, in terms of frequency. But I guess the question is, why are you doing that instead of vitamin D? So my personal preference would be before going on calcitriol, look at the more root cause natural options first. So, you know, are you getting enough vitamin D? Are you getting enough magnesium to activate the vitamin D? Uh, do you have the proper balance with other fat-soluble vitamins? Are you, you know, are you not overdosing on something else that is degrading the vitamin D? Um, 
So I would I would look at those. I would kind of exhaust those options before going on calcitriol because if you can get your body to regulate its own calcitriol production properly, then you are going to have a more robust means of achieving better bone mineral density. But I'm not against using calcitriol if you need to after having exhausted those options. And I think the major downsides are, like I said before, uh, it is a higher maintenance thing because the calcitriol doesn't stay in your system for very long. And there is some risk of hypercalcemia, but presumably the prescribing doctor is helping you avoid that risk. Um, yeah. So I hope that helps, Heather. RJ Douglas says, hi, Chris, I have a few questions that are all related. I know there have been studies linking a high carb evening meal with a more rapid sleep onset. Ideally, would this meal be almost entirely carbs, such as plain baked potato, or would it be okay to add some fats to this meal in terms of sleep onset? If fats are okay in this meal, do you have any suggestions for what fats are most easily absorbed in the evening? Also, would hydrolyzed collagen be acceptable as a protein source at this evening meal, as I've heard this type of protein is easier to digest? Uh, so first of all, I'm not familiar with the studies saying that a high-carb evening meal assists with more rapid sleep onset. Not saying they're not there. I just, I'm not familiar with them. What I am familiar with is A, there are studies showing that eating a high glycemic, high carb meal at any time of the day improves sleep. Um, and I don't remember because it's been a while since I looked at those studies. I don't remember whether they are focused on on uh, sleep latency, which is the speed at which you fall asleep, which is what you're talking about, um, versus other ways to measure sleep quality or insomnia. Um, you know, so I don't I don't remember whether they're focused on sleep latency versus time in sleep, but I do remember that they show have shown that a high glycemic meal even in the morning will improve sleep, and that mechanism is that you're getting tryptophan into the brain. And so with respect to getting tryptophan into the brain, and that's because carbs stimulate insulin, which lowers large nonpolar amino acids that compete with tryptophan for transport into the brain. Exercise is another way to achieve that. Uh, and tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin, which is a precursor to melatonin. And... In that pathway, you metabolize tryptophan into N-acetylserotonin, which then serves as a precursor to melatonin that is stored until darkness. And then darkness induces the methylation of the N-acetylserotonin to make melatonin. And so it doesn't matter what time of the day you get the tryptophan into the brain because the N-acetylserotonin just sits there until darkness. And darkness... Uh, mediates the final step in melatonin synthesis. So with that, with that specific mechanism, when you get the tryptophan to the brain and therefore when you eat the high-carb meal, does not matter. However, I'm also familiar with um, mechanistic data that glucose suppresses orexin, which is... Um, also called hypocretin, 
and does it more effectively than other uh, macronutrients. And protein actually stimulates orexin. And orexin is the main thing that drives histamine production in the brain. And histamine production in the brain contributes to alertness. And it will cause insomnia if it's elevated late in the night. And so I don't know whether there are studies showing that the evening meal, carbs the evening meal favors sleep onset. But I believe that would be the case for many people on the basis that you are helping to suppress orexin, also known as hypocretin, uh, and therefore suppressing brain histamine levels at night. And so mechanistically, it makes sense that putting the carbs in the evening meal would help on that basis. Okay. Now, your other related questions were, should the meal be almost entirely carbs, such as a Blake Bake, plain baked potato. Well, from the perspective of getting tryptophan into the brain, uh, that mechanism would probably be best achieved if you took a tryptophan supplement, ate no other protein, and just ate the plain baked potato. Um, in terms of the orexin, where the timing matters then you probably would get the best results if you eat a low-protein meal. And it probably wouldn't matter that much if you ate fat. However, you will have a, a higher glycemic index if you don't eat fat. And a higher glycemic index will help both of those things. So it will help get more tryptophan into the brain. And it'll probably mean that you know, the higher your blood glucose gets faster, the more, the bigger of a spike you get inside the brain. And so it's probably going to have a more suppressive effect on orexin. So it would probably be best in the evening meal if it was low protein and low fat and high carb. Although I don't think you need to go so far as to make it only carbs. And then your next question was, if fats are okay in the meal, do you have any suggestions on what fats are most easily absorbed in the evening? I don't see why, how easy the fats being absorbed would matter. And I don't know anything about any kind of diurnal, meaning change throughout the day, difference in the relative difference in absorption of different fats. So if such data exists, I don't know about it. Um. Then your next question was, also, would a hydrolyzed collagen be acceptable as a protein source at the evening meal? As I've heard that type of protein is easier to digest. Uh, I don't know if that if collagen is easier to digest than other protein, but I would not ever consider that a relevant concern for anything except someone with severe digestive problems who's suffering from total protein deficiency. Um because the amino acid mix of collagen does not supply your essential amino acids. And so you should never, ever substitute collagen for non-protein collagen. And so when you're considering your protein requirement, you should consider your non-protein, your non-collagen protein requirement, and you should not count collagen towards it at all. Um, however, it is good to get collagen as collagen because it's collagen and because of the specific amino specific amino acid balance in the collagen, um, and I do recommend balancing muscle protein with collagen. I've written about that in the past. 
If you Google Master John Collagen, uh, Master John Methionine Glycine Database, uh, or Balancing Methionine and Glycine, you'll get my article on that. You can also go to chrismasterjohnphd.com and then uh, go to tools and then look for the methionine and glycine database and it describes how to balance that. Uh, but hydrolyzed collagen would be a great protein to have at night because glycine, is, collagen is rich in glycine and glycine helps you sleep as a neurotransmitter. And because collagen is relatively lower in a lot of the amino acids that would compete for tryptophan entry into the brain. Uh, but it's not, um, it's not, it doesn't have zero content of those competing amino acids. And so I wouldn't eat a high collagen, you know, I wouldn't eat a high protein meal as collagen, but, you know, a tablespoon or something in the evening might be helpful. All right. Hope that helps RJ. Thank you for your question. Anonymous says, Dr. CMJ, could you provide your opinion about whether you believe the COVID vaccine booster shot is worth getting for those of us who are currently fully vaccinated? Well, I don't know where you're living, but right now it's illegal to get a COVID a booster vaccine if you're fully vaccinated uh, in the United States. So I, are you asking from Israel or somewhere where it's legal to get the booster? Um <laughs> Because right now, the in the United States, uh, and I I know that there's um, plenty of people who are not in the United States uh, in here. I just don't know where you're where you're from. But so um, you know, typically my audience is probably going to be fifty five, sixty percent U.S. So in the United States, I can say that uh, the boosters are only EUA status. The Pfizer booster is EUA status for immunocompromised people and is not legal for anyone else. Um, and so that could change. Now, you're asking about worth getting. Well, uh, that really depends on how you look at it. So first of all, all the data on declining efficacy is from the Pfizer vaccine. And... That doesn't mean that the other vaccines don't have declining efficacy over time, but they certainly seem to be more durable than the Pfizer vaccine. And so that, you know, that's why Israel is is where you get all this, you know, that's where you get like real serious data about declining efficacy, because that's where pretty much everyone's vaccinated with Pfizer. Um and so, you know, is like why would Moderna not have declining efficacy? Presumably, it's because it's a higher dose and causes a greater immunostimulation at the you know at the initial uh, two doses, and so presumably it has the exact same characteristics that Pfizer has in declining efficacy, but it overshoots the it sort of you know presumably Pfizer maxes out F, the the efficacy you can get from an mRNA vaccine at the initial dosing. By initial dosing, I mean the first two doses, the non-booster doses. So presumably Pfizer sort of, they they have the dose of mRNA that provides the maximal efficacy, by which I mean the maximal, not the maximal response, but 
to the degree of a vaccine, an mRNA vaccine induced immune response can generate decreased effic- uh, decreased case counts, symptomatic case counts and serious illness. Pfizer has maxed that out. So Moderna has overshot the dose, which uh, I'm not 100% sure this is true, but it, from what I heard, that this uh, is with the intent of having less rigorous storage conditions. So I don't know how much the dose is increased by the time it's shot into someone's arm, but uh, presumably if it's uh, stored less rigorously, and I don't know whether that's true, but if it is, then presumably the, d- the dose is more variable. Um, but in any case, presumably on average, it's higher. Um, and so maybe you get a higher immune response where you don't, there is no obvious increase in efficacy at the 21 day time point um, or at the 28 day, or, um, you know, if it's, tw- if the doses are 21 days apart at the, and you're looking at 14 days after the second dose at the, um, 35 day time point, um, you know, but maybe at the six month time point, you're going to see that difference because the lower dose of Pfizer made the durability lower, made the declining efficacy more apparent at the six month mark and not for Moderna. But if that's the case, I would think that at the one year mark, you're going to see the declining efficacy with Moderna. Um, and we just haven't gotten there yet. And then I don't know why you wouldn't see, uh, you know, it might be the same exact thing with, with the other vaccines. Um, like the uh, adenoviral vector ones are probably you know, they're basically doing more or less the same thing with trying to get the spike protein, et cetera. So I don't know why they would be any difference with the declining efficacy. It just uh, might be that they're producing a higher dose in Pfizer, a higher spike protein response in Pfizer. And so therefore also it is taking longer to see their declining efficacy. Um, So, you know, if your priority is maintaining maximum efficacy of your vaccination, then with Pfizer, you're going to have to have the booster. And with the others, you're probably going to have to have the booster, um, you know, but not for, but not until later, right? So with Pfizer, maybe the booster is justified at the six to 12 month mark, depending on what your threshold is of when, you know, what case protection you need, um, I mean, if you if your if your only priority was you wanted to keep it as high as possible, you really should be getting the Pfizer vaccine every four months, uh, because the the decline in efficacy is very apparent at the four month mark. Um, you know, but if if your goal is I just want to maintain higher than X percentage protection against getting infected or serious illness then you know maybe you're you're looking more at the 6 to 12 month mark and later for the other vaccines for the boosters however if your priority is you want to do what's shown to be safe then you should never get the booster <laughs> because uh once you're talking about a three dose regimen you're firmly outside what has been tested in any of the clinical trials and you are firmly outside of what will ever be tested in any of the clinical trials um, because even with the two dose regimen, even with Pfizer, right? The phase two trial 
data is out as a preprint now. And they're doing a phase one, phase two, phase three study, which means that the phase three results are just going to be the same exact trial, but the later results. Um, but those aren't released yet. But if you look at the phase two results, they say, we unblinded the study and we vaccinated the whole control group already, but we were able to collect data from somewhere between four to six months after vaccination for people during the blinded controlled period of the study. But what that means is that the phase three results for the two-dose regimen are not going to be placebo-controlled blinded. Uh, they're not going to be placebo-controlled or blinded when they come out. So how on earth are they ever going to have any placebo-controlled blinded trial data with the booster shots? Uh, I mean, I guess they can do... Uh, I guess they can take the two-dose people and randomize them to booster shot versus not. I guess they can do that. <laughs> but you also have to consider that you are now firmly in... If you're talking about three doses over like an 18-month period, for example, you're now firmly in the camp of the Deng vaccine where they had a three-dose regimen over an 18-month period, and they vaccinated 700,000 Filipino kids, and they went through two and a half to three years before they got a, an ADE signal, antibody-dependent enhancement, uh, which is a process where the antibodies generated by infection or vaccine can make the clinical severity of the disease worse. Um, and it took them two and a half to three years to get a signal for that, and uh, that, you know, turned out that if you hadn't gotten Deng before you got the vaccine and you got the vaccine and then you got Deng later, you had a much more severe case of Deng than you would have had otherwise. Um, and so even if they do, uh, in RC, and I don't think they will, but even if they do an RCT of, you know, take fully vaccinated people and randomize them to booster or not to look at safety when are they going to end it at the six month mark? Uh, in which case we're not really out of the woods in terms of what a three dose over 18 month regimen regimen might take to show the ADE signal as in the case of Deng. Um, and then of course, like when are they going to start this trial? I guess they could do it as an evolution out of the phase one, two, three trial. I guess they you know, I guess they don't have to do recruitment anymore. They take those people and randomize them to booster or not. So that would get it done sooner. But I mean, if they're not testing this now and they got to have to get six month results out of it and those aren't enough, when are you going to get your booster? <laughs> so from the perspective of efficacy, so to summarize from the perspective of efficacy, then with Pfizer, I think you need the booster and if you're trying to keep efficacy at the maximum, you need it every three or four months. But if you're trying to just prevent uh, efficacy from dropping below a certain critical threshold, maybe you get it every six to 12 months. I personally would predict that you will probably need the booster with uh, Moderna, AstraZeneca, et cetera. Uh, but... Only time will tell. 
And then from the perspective of safety, I think the safety of the booster is going to be very questionable because we're not going to have trial data on it. We might not, never have trial data on it. Uh, and we're probably going to have to re rely on observational safety data. And I would think a three-dose regimen is now going to take longer of what you know would be reasonable data collection time. Uh, and so if you're, you're going to have to make a choice between whether you're optimizing for efficacy or safety. And uh, if you're optimizing for safety, you should be more skeptical of the, of the um, booster. And if you're optimizing for efficacy, then you should be more quick to get the booster. But it's, you know, only demonstrated need is with Pfizer. Um, but I think time will show us that you, uh, you're going to have declined efficacy on all of these and it just might be a different schedule. Um, so maybe if you're fully vaccinated with a non-Pfizer vaccine, you can wait longer <laughs> until there's more data or something like that. But, uh, but that's my thoughts on that. So I hope that helps Anonymous. Mark Silva says, hi, Chris. Thanks for all that you do. Lab work January 2020, Faridin 1264 nanograms per milliliter. That's very high. Percent saturation, 33%. That's very normal. Iron total, 122 micrograms per deciliter. Don't remember the range off the top of my head, but that seems fairly normal. Cholesterol, 300 milligrams per deciliter. That's quite high. HDL, 55. That looks quite low. Uh, so just 30 to 50 would be a ratio of six. Um, with 55, it's a little bit lower than that. But So you're five point something on the ratio. Um, well, two... 250. So if, if it was 275 to 55, that would be five. So yeah, you're five point something on your ratio of total to HDL cholesterol, which is high risk. Triggs at 92, that looks good. It's fine. LDL at 164, that's high. So that was January 2020. Now we're looking at July 2021. So a year and a half later. Ferritin has gone from 1264 to 1111. Percent saturation has gone down to 21%. Iron total has gone up a little bit, 135 micrograms per deciliter. Cholesterol is similar. Ah, Mark continues. High sensitivity CRP, is, which is a marker of inflammation, is less than 0.3. GGT is 19 uh, units per liter. I don't remember the range on that, but that looks the GGT looks normal to me, and the HSCRP is uh, very good. All other markers are in range. Healthy 35-year-old active male, no hemochromatosis variants detected on 23andMe. Also recently discovered thanks to you an MTHFR variant. Using your calculator, my methylfolate score is 73% decrease. I've been primarily eating nose-to-tail carnivore diet for several years, including eggs and dairy. Doctors are at a loss for what's going on. Well, um, so first of all, it, you know, I, I think you were right to suspect inflammation given the high ferritin, but the low saturation, uh, not low, but normal saturation. It does seem like you're not the best candidate for iron overload, given that your saturation is so normal. However, uh, inflammation is not the only thing 
that raises ferritin. Oxidative stress is another major thing that cause, that raises ferritin, and you don't have any oxidative stress markers. But also, iron overload causes oxidative stress. And so, although an early case of iron overload, I would be more expecting of expectant of high saturation, maybe not so high ferritin. I think it's very reasonable that a more advanced case of iron overload could result in high ferritin and normal saturation just because the oxidative stress generated by the high iron, which is not generated by the high ferritin, it's generated by the high free iron. The high ferritin is telling you that you can infer that you probably have high free iron and the ferritin's acting in response to that. I uh, saw so high free iron generating high oxidative stress, which is then generating an increase in ferritin. Uh, so even though hemochromatosis generally involves a lack of sufficient ferritin response relative to the iron overload that you have, your oxidative stress is then kicking the ferritin into the gear. Into gear. So I don't think you can rule out that iron overload is your primary problem. Uh, further than that, there's like 15 other genes besides HFE that account for like 5% of hemochromatosis cases. And th there's no clinical test that captures all of them. So you can't rule out, you can rule out, rule in hemochromatosis with HFE genes, and you can get those tested on 23andMe, but you cannot rule out hemochromatosis with any commercially available genetic tests. So I don't think you can rule out that you have hemochromatosis even. Um, so I would say you need to you need to investigate two things. One is, do you have oxidative stress? But a more elementary thing, the other thing, and the more elementary and basic thing to look at is, how does your ferritin respond to blood donation or phlebotomy? Because of donating blood or taking it out and throwing it away decreases your ferritin each time you do it and eventually goes back down to normal, then you solved your problem right there. Your problem is iron overload. And your negative HFE genes don't tell you otherwise. Uh, however, if that's not working, the, and particularly if you go anemic or something, right? So like if you donate blood and the ferritin is not responding the way you want it to, but your uh, serum iron is going down and your iron saturation is going down below 30%, like it, you know, here it went down to 21%. So if it keeps going down further and, uh, and then even worse, your hemoglobin goes low and your blood cell count goes low, then I, I think that sort of says, you know, maybe high iron is not the problem here. And maybe it's more likely to be a, a primary oxidative stress issue, meaning primary might not be the best word, but just with respect to iron metabolism, it isn't secondary to the iron overload. Um, so that's kind of your two competing frameworks here are you have a primary iron overload condition and a secondary oxidative stress response, or you don't have an iron overload problem. You have a primary oxidative stress problem, and that is creating the illusion of a iron overload problem. So I think the simplest thing to do is try blood donation or phlebotomy. See if the iron goes down without causing 
iron deficiency anemia marker, uh, iron deficiency anemia um, like markers. Um, and if and if that doesn't work, then investigate oxidative stress. Best thing to do would be measure, uh, you know, get testing nutritional status, the ultimate cheat sheet, and measure everything in the oxidative stress section. You could start with, um, if you're going to get a an I, Genova ion panel for the many reasons to get one, then the 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine and the lipid peroxides would be the best measures on that. Uh, I believe Quest and LabCorp both have independent lipid peroxide measurements. F2 isoprostanes is another marker that you could look at that, not sure if LabCorp and Quest have that, but the Boston Heart Lab has it. And LabCorp's whole blood glutathione test would be good to get. Although if you get the ion panel, you can get the glutathione that's on there. And then, you know, there's many other things in the cheat sheet, but that those would be the places to start just for the general question of, is there oxidative stress going on? Um, but I wouldn't run out to get those until you test out the blood donation hypothesis first, because if you're, if you have iron overload, you will have oxidative stress. So the real, you know, the actual question is not, do you have oxidative stress? It's, do you have an iron overload condition? And so see if iron, the iron markers respond the way you think they should to the blood donation slash phlebotomy approach first. Because if they do, if if that responds the way you want it to, then the oxidative stress might just fall in, into place. Whereas if it doesn't, then you might have to deal with the oxidative stress to directly figure out what its causes and deal with that. In terms of the high cholesterol, the oxidative stress, and particularly the iron could be elevating it. Uh, but you're on a carnivore diet. And so it's common for people on a carnivore diet to develop high cholesterol and you might need to increase your fiber intake or something like that. All right. Hope that helps, Mark. Thank you for your question. Greg Morgan says, I've cold, uh, sorry, Greg Morgan says, cold sore, HSV1, flare up from GABA supplementation, question mark. Came across an article saying there's a link to DLK dual leucine zipper kinase and interleukin-1 activation in cold sores. Without the release of DLK, apparently the virus won't reactivate and form the cold sores. I then found some information saying DLK is related to GABA, although I don't recall how. Coincidentally, I had begun taking GABA supplementation for about three or four days when I suddenly had a cold sore outbreak. I had not had an outbreak in about two years. Do you think there's a connection here or not? something I want to try again to find out. Do you know any other triggers for cold sores, high oxalates? Uh, I don't know anything about this topic. So, uh, I, you know, if you find that before the end of the AMA, we got about 45 minutes left. If you find the paper that you're reading about the GABA DLK link, I'll take a look at it and see if there's anything I can say about it, but I don't know anything about it right now. Um, and I think it's possible that arginine to leucine ratio uh, that has been studied with respect to herpes. And so it, it, that might be a cold sore trigger. I'm not sure. Uh, but I don't know why GABA supplementation would do that. So if you if you find that paper, uh, post a link. And if there's time, I'll take a look at it. 
but uh, I don't know anything about it off the top of my head. So sorry, I can't be more help with that, Greg. Danny M says, do you have any experience with urinary mycotoxin testing? For example, Great Plains Labs mycotoxin test for identifying mold exposure. If so, have you seen high correlation between elevated test results and actual mold exposure? Or have you found other explanations for elevated test results? Well, I'll tell you when I was dealing with severe uh, household mold exposure, I did the uh, real-time mycotoxin test, which I don't know how that is uh, differs from Great Plains uh, methodologically or whatever, but there, um, I see someone is posting a response in the chat to the other question uh, about Laura Sidon. So check out the chat. But uh, Paulette, you should you should. Oh, I see you posted that there because I archived the question. All right. So Paulette says Laura Sidon may help with herpes simplex. Uh, okay. Anyway. Danny M was asking if I have experience with urinary mycotoxin testing, for example, Great Plains Labs, for identifying mold exposure, and whether that correlates with actual mold exposure or if I've found other explanations for elevated test results. So when I was dealing with a severe mold-related illness driven by mold exposure in my apartment a few years ago, I didn't use the Great Plains test. I used real-time mycotoxin tests, but it's testing the same set of mycotoxins. And I had the dust from my apartment sampled, and I had my urine sampled. And uh, meanwhile, I also had an inspector come, and just the inspector found visible black mold that was seeping out of my... Uh, the uh, where the tiles of the or where the um, wall of the shower bathtub meets the uh, like the ledge of the bathtub. So in that corner, black mold was seeping out of that joint. And he also pointed out, which I never noticed, but was very obvious after he pointed it out to me that if you turned and faced so that you were uh, so that your eyesight was parallel to the wall and then just turn slightly to look at the wall, you could visibly see the wall bulging out, reflecting the mold growth inside the wall. Um, and I developed a severe illness when I was sleeping on a couch on the other side of the wall. And so he pointed out that sheetrock is porous enough for mycotoxins to go through. And so one hypothesis was that there was an enormous amount of black mold inside that wall that was just constantly seeping out into the living room through that wall on top of me while I was sleeping on the couch or just onto the couch that I was sleeping in. Um, but anyway, point being, I had urinary mycotoxins that were elevated and I had mycotoxins that were elevated in the dust of my apartment and the Dust mycotoxins were completely different from the urinary mycotoxins, making it totally implausible that even though I had a severe mold, severe symptomatic mold-induced illness caused by obvious visible mold contamination in my apartment, uh, there was still no correlation between the urinary mycotoxins and the apartment mycotoxins. 
And so I concluded that the, uh, that the, you know, whatever I spent, like at least $1,200 or if not 2000 or whatever on those tests, uh, was totally useless. Um, and honestly, it was much more significant that I noticed that my brain fog went away when I was outside and not in my apartment. Um, and so I just, you know, I think those urinary mycotoxins, they might be coming from your apartment, but there's a good chance they're coming from your food. Um, most people have urinary mycotoxins and it's from the food supply. Uh, and it's probably not clinically significant quite often. And so... I, you know, I'm not against testing it, but I just like if finances are at all limiting, it's not the top thing I would do. Um, I would be much more interested in do you have symptoms that are, are um, compatible with mold induced illness? And do they go away when you spend time away from the place that you think is contaminated with mold? The number one uh, hint, the number one is not even a hint. The number one red flag that you have environmental mold exposure is if you get out of the environment, the symptoms go away. Um, you know, so look at the price of a vacation and the price of the mycotoxins and make cost-benefit analysis if, and just assume that the vacation will tell you as much as the mycotoxin test will tell you. Um, so assume the benefit is the same and the vacation has the added benefit of whatever you would value about being on vacation and then see how the cost lines up and decide what you'd rather do from a cost-benefit analysis. Um, because, because actually, I don't assume that the, that the benefit is the same. Assume you'll get more information from taking a vacation, getting out of the potentially moldy, the putatively moldy environment then you would get out of your urinary mycotoxin test. That's what I would say. All right. Thank you, Danny, for your question. hope that helps. Jeff Husby says, I'm trying to figure out the best time to take TMG as a poor methylator uh, assessed from strategy genetic report making, made by Seeking Health. The body only creates it in the fasting state, right? Does that mean if it, it would be a waste of time to take it in the fed state or will the body store it for later use if taken during the fed state? Sometimes it's just easier to remember to take supplements with food rather than at random times routine meals. So um, TMG, you normally, yes, you would get it from oxidizing choline. And yeah, that's going to increase in the fasting state when you're low in methyl groups. But uh, you are also going to eat TMG. And so dietary TMG, also known as betaine, uh, contributes to that. So I don't see why you wouldn't be able to store it for later use. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. But, but you know, you can, you can always test that, right? So if TMG lowers your homocysteine, if, if TMG doesn't give you the homocysteine lowering response you're looking for, then try in the fasting state, see if it makes a difference. If you find it does, then you know do what the results say. But as far as presumption, I, I wouldn't worry about it. I would just take it with meals if it's easier. 
Thank you, Jeff, for your question. Alicia C says, can you please talk about what BH4 is, how to assess it, and ways to possibly increase it if important? Uh, increase it if important. The reason I'm curious is because my plasma phenylalanine to tyrosine ratio is 1.4, which is around where researchers talk about genetic problems with um, PAH, the enzyme, uh, phenylalanine hydroxylase. But my phenylalanine isn't high, and I don't see any SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, genetic variations, in my 23andMe data. Phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan are all well within range on my LabCorp plasma test. My urine, HBA, VMA, and 5-HIAA, which are markers of, uh, of um, dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, are pretty low in the Genova range, and I do have symptoms of low neurotransmitters after chronic illness. Interestingly, there have been times in my life where my skin absolutely would not tan and other times when it tanned easily, which makes me wonder about changes in the availability of melanin from tyrosine. I'd like to make sure this apparent phenylalanine conversion problem isn't due to cofactor deficiency, and I'm currently working on getting my iron up. Copper is good, so that leaves BH4, which I don't know anything about, but maybe you and your fabulous brain do. Thank you. Um, so... BH4 is tetrahydrobiopterin, and BH4 can uh, basically contributes reducing equivalence, meaning hydrogen ions and electrons, kind of like NAD, which is a derivative of niacin, uh, or really NADPH. I guess it's more like NADPH in that it's uh, contributing reducing equivalence rather than taking them. Um, Yeah, but there, are, you know, NAD, NADH also does that uh, in, in certain, I guess, certain reactions. FADH2 might be a better example, which is a derivative of riboflavin. But um, so it's basically just another cofactor that is specific to certain groups of enzymes that can uh, contribute reducing equivalents, hydrogen ions and electrons, in order to catalyze steps in various conversions. And so BH4 is oxidized to BH2. And then it can be degraded, but uh, generally there's a cycle where BH4 contributes to the reaction, becomes BH2, then it needs to get reduced again. Um, and so uh, one of the uh, one of the enzymes that it's involved in is uh, phenylalanine hydroxylase, which is converting phenylalanine to tyrosine. And so Alicia is saying. Other cofactors for that, the cofactors for that are BH4, iron, and copper. Uh, she's working on iron, and copper is good. And so she's saying if there's one thing left over, maybe it's the BH4, but she doesn't know how to measure BH4, and she's wondering if that is contributing to her phenylalanine to tyrosine ratio being kind of high, which suggests the phenylalanine is not contributing to the tyrosine, uh, to is not being converted to tyrosine adequately. Um, and she's worried since tyrosine is a precursor to dopamine and norepinephrine um, and melanin, if uh, her tyrosine running low um, could be driving that. But she notes that the tyrosine is well within the ra normal range on the LabCorp plasma test. 
Although, uh, so Alicia, did you did you not get the Genova plasma amino acids? Did you get the Genova? I'm a little confused. Is the phenylalanine to tyrosine ratio from Genova ion panel? And if so, is the phenylalanine, tyrosine, and tryptophan also well within the normal range, like on the LabCorp plasma test? Because... So what I'm not understanding from this, and maybe you can reply to your question and answer it. What I'm not understanding is whether the plasma values of those amino acids are all with, well within the normal range on both tests, or if there's a discrepancy between the Genova test and the LabCorp test, or if you only have the plasma amino acids from LabCorp and you calculated the ratio yourself. Um, so that might change my answer a little bit. But, um, uh, but uh, you know, I'll just try to answer without that. So, um, if the phenyl, I mean, if the tyrosine plasma levels are totally normal, then that does seem to argue against the ratio being a problem. However, if the urinary tyrosine neurotransmitter, tyrosine deriv derived neurotransmitter metabolites are low then it is quite possible that the tyrosine levels are in the middle of the normal range um, because you have like low, uh, low, low, like you have low conversion of tyrosine, um, but you're, react you're responding to that with low production of tyrosine-derived neurotransmitters and melanin. And so you're responding to that with low urinary metabolites. So it could be that, you know, your production is low, but you're just, your total flux of the pathway is very low. So um, your levels are normal, but they're only normal because your flux through the pathway is low. And so you, you're you, even, that's not the most likely response to low conversion of phenylalanine to tyrosine. Like it's more likely that the low supply of tyrosine is going to manifest in low plasma levels and that, that the low plasma levels are driving the low brain levels, which are driving low neurotransmitter levels. So I wouldn't rule out... Um, oh, Alicia responded. So let me just finish that thought. I would not rule out um, the low neurotransmitter levels being driven from the low phenylalanine tyrosine conversion on the basis of mid-normal tyrosine alone. Um, but I would sort of take it as kind of evidence that that's more like less likely. Okay. Alicia says, five years ago, I did the Genova ion and noticed this high phenylalanine to tyrosine ratio. Recently, I did the Genova organics only plus a LabCorp plasma amino acid panel, which I used to calculate the ratio and found the ratio was the same as my prior ion test results. Okay. So... In the old ion, where you, was your phenylalanine the same as in your current lab core, right? So there, what you're telling me is there's no discrepancy between the ratio on the ion test and the lab core test. So the question is, is there a discrepancy between the 
like what where the the singular amino acids are within the ranges on the ion and lab core test um because if there's not then we don't have to worry about any discrepancy between the lab core and genova test and we also don't have to worry about any change over time because everything's the same but if there's a discrepancy then suddenly we don't know whether the discrepancy is a result of it being 5 years ago versus one being Genova and one being LabCorp because uh, you, as much as you might think that lab measurements are objective, they're not. And so what lab's measuring it, you always have to control for that. Um, so I think that makes a difference. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of the easy way to get around this is... Well, okay, so your original question was, what's BH4? How do you assess it? And what, what do you do about it? Um, and the reality is that uh, the only... I, the HDRI is the best place to get a BH4 test. And they can look at BH4, BH2, and the ratio. Um, and then you can get BH4 supplements. But you have to use real high doses that are real expensive for non-prescription BH4 to match what is used in clinically effective uses of BH4. And the main nutritional thing that you can do about BH4, and you there are things you can do nothing about, like enz enzyme deficiencies or something, uh, you know, like um, phenylketonuria, for example, can be driven by BH4 enzyme deficiencies as well as phenylalanine hydroxylase enzyme deficiencies. Um, but I'll tell you, I had a client, a consulting client who had, um, who was heterozygous for, I think this was from Dante. I think it was Dante labs. I don't remember, but it was not 23 me. It was a clinical, uh, clinical inborn error of metabolism, genetic test. And he was heterozygous for maple syrup, urine disease which is a defect in branched chain amino acid metabolism and for uh, phenylketonuria, which is, uh, you know, in, in phenylalanine, phenylalanine hydroxylase, um, which is roughly analogous to what you're talking about here. And uh, he was very symptomatic. So I looked up the mechanisms of these two diseases and the blood markers and his blood markers for amino acids were all in the range of what is, you know, considered normal or, or effective treatment of those diseases. But if you just thought through the logic of the biochemistry of what these things are doing, then that's where you saw that the heterozygosity of each of those was manifesting in divergences in the blood amino acid levels from what you would expect, um, not from those diseases, but divergences that you would expect if you had modest differences in uh, your metabolism from that. And he had clinically significant symptoms that were, that were logically related to those. And what I deduced was that he did not have the elevations in phenylalanine that would 
contribute that would be involved in phenylketonuria. And so you can rule out that the high phenylalanine was a problem. However, one of the things that phenylalanine, one of the problems that it does is not only does it itself being elevated in the brain cause problems, but it also causes problems with interfering with the transport of, of uh, tyrosine and tryptophan into the brain and their metabolism to neurotransmitters in the brain. And so low neurotransmitters can result from the low uh, transport of those amino acids into the brain. And so... Although all his amino acid levels were normal, because of the maple syrup urine disease, uh, heterozygosity, he had higher, you know, high end branch chain amino acids. And because of the heterozygosity for phenylketonuria, he had higher end of normal phenylalanine. Um, and that was, and he had, you know, lower end of normal um tyrosine. And so the high, uh, he had high amino acids that would compete for tyrosine entry into the brain. And then in the brain, he probably had higher levels of uh, those other competing amino acids that would interfere with neurotransmitter production. But also when you get these, when you get the ion panel, you're getting a fasting test. And so that you might not have elevated phenylalanine according to the fasting normal range, but you might have postprandial spikes in postprandial spikes in phenylalanine that do exceed the normal postprandial value that you are never seeing because when you get the plasma amino acid test, you're getting it fasting. Um, and so what I said to him was, well, look, you can try to support this with these exceedingly high doses of BH4. But this is both expensive and an utter pain in the ass to uh, supplement with. But basic logic would say that you should be able to correct these neurotransmitter imbalances by supplementing with tyrosine. So why don't you try that first? So we tried that first and it worked. <laughs> so I would say if you think that this problem is driving low tyrosine and that's driving low melanin, and that's driving low neurotransmitters. Uh, look for oxidative stress and fix it if it's there. But you, it's going to be way easier to supplement with tyrosine. See if that helps. So Alicia adds phenylalanine was 59 on the ion and 66.6 on the lab core. Um, on the ion, that was basically in the middle. So it's like, uh, let's see, the range is, let's say 40 to 70 and it's 60. I'm rounding here. Um, and so it's like two thirds into the range. LabCorp has a much bigger range on the lower end. So they'll let the phenylalanine drop down to 3.8. The higher end of the range is very similar, 76.9 versus 74. Um, so you're, I would say that if you're discounting the fact that LabCorp allows you to go real, real low, whereas Genova will catch you on the bottom end of that range, I would say those ranges are otherwise similar and that your phenylalanine levels are similar. Um, oh, okay. That was a typo. 
Oh, okay. So scratch that. LabCorp and uh, and Genova's ranges are almost identical, and the values are too close to say they're different. Um, and so LabCorp and Genova, five years apart, are telling Alicia the exact same thing. Okay, I revert to my last thing. So you know you can get HDRI's test for BH4, BH2 total and ratio. You can look at oxidative stress markers that could be interfering with BH4. You can continue to work on your iron. Um, but based on the hypothesis here, you're probably going to get quicker, easier, cheaper results by supplementing with tyrosine and seeing if that works. All right. Thank you, Alicia, for your question. Hope that helps. Anonymous says, hi, Dr. CMJ. Thank you for all your great work. I know that you have put together a substantial amount of work related to vitamin D and COVID. I think it's a real game changer. By the way, anyone watching this can get that at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash vitamin D. 173 references, 98 observational studies, six randomized controlled trials. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I think it's the best review of the vitamin D and COVID literature that you're going to find anywhere. Um, anyway, back to Anonymous's question. I think it's a real game changer, and I hope more people become aware of it. Thank you. Uh, I have three questions related to your vitamin D research. One, could you please say whether the recommended vitamin D levels you discussed in your recent ancestral health presentation change for someone who has had the COVID vaccine? In other words, if you were targeting that presentation toward only people who have had the COVID vaccine, would any of your recommendations change? Two, would you, what would be your recommendation in terms of testing for vitamin D status? Would getting vitamin D tested every three months be prudent or more or less frequently? I guess you mean for someone who's vaccinated? And number three, do you have any recommendations for vitamin D supplements? I usually take Thorin D3. Uh, number one, I don't see any basis for changing it for vaccinated people. I mean, if you're... Uh, I don't see how it would uh, you know, change the likelihood that you're going to like discover some future side effect that you didn't have before. And... You know, you could argue that maybe you don't need the vitamin D as much because you are have other level of protection. But other than that, I I don't see why it would be changed. Um, and then number two, uh, oh, I see. Number two, I guess, is general. What? How often should you test vitamin D status? And would it, testing it every three months be prudent? I think. Um, I think for someone who's never tested their vitamin D status and testing it quarterly for a year or two is a great way to see what your seasonal variation is given your typical habits. Um, you know, but once you know that, if you're just trying to make sure that you haven't deviated from year to year, then uh, you can sort of say like, okay, I know what the, what the yearly variation is, just assuming it's similar let me just check in once a year to see if it's the, you know, the average level of staying normal. Um, you know, but you could argue that in the age of COVID, you want to be more proactive about quarterly testing just to make sure that you're in the 50 to 60 nanogram per milliliter range, which where which is where the lowest infection rate is and which will prevent you from uh, risking a delay in your ability to get your status up heading into an infection, heading into a known infection or a suspected one. Um, so yeah, I mean, getting it tested quarterly uh, would be helpful. 
you know, although if you get it tested once and it's at 50 nanograms per milliliter and you keep doing what you're doing, uh, as long as you're not heading into decreasing sun exposure, when sun exposure was a major source of your vitamin D, it's probably going to stay similar if you keep doing what you're doing. Um, yeah, but it, there's no harm in testing it more often. And, and if, if you can, then it, that would give you more confidence that you're staying where you want to be. And then I don't have any specific recommendations for vitamin D supplements. I think they're largely the same. So you can look through, I mean, D3 instead of D2, but you can use it Randu Tras, look for something that doesn't have the fillers that you want. I would prefer oils or gel caps over tablets just out of suspicion more than anything else. Uh, but I don't have... Um, I don't have like super specific recommendations on vitamin D uh, on, on brands. So I hope that helps it anonymous. Thank you for your question. Anonymous says, what do you know about the advantages of allothiamine over other types of thiamine? Some keto dieters with very high LDL levels have seen a drop in LDL levels after taking high doses of allothiamine. Can you think of a mechanism for this? Um, I no, I I can't. Um, allothiamine. Uh, I'm skeptical of allothiamine that it is uh, bioavailable, but I know there maybe there's research I haven't seen on that. Um, but I don't know what the mechanism would be for LDL. Anonymous says, any advantage to slow re slow release glutathione? Thorn have a product. Um, also good for, let's see, deep. Oh, this is glutathione SR, sustained release. So I guess this is just, I guess it's just typical slow release uh, formula applied to glutathione. Uh, Anonymous continues, also glutathione is apparently used by some people for skin whitening. How does it have this effect and is it harmful? It seems something that changes pigmentation is powerful stuff that worries me. Um, so first of all, uh, I don't have any opinion on slow release glutathione. I don't see why that would be necessary. And I haven't seen uh, human trial data on it. Um, skin whitening, I guess, I guess there's two ways to look at that. So one would be that it's increasing, reducing agents too much and is therefore interfering with the redox reactions that, uh, create melanin, in which case that would be a bad thing. But if that were the case, you would probably be you know, more likely to get sunburned. Um, alternatively, it might be reducing the need for melanin by improving antioxidant function, in which case you'd be less likely to get sunburned. So I would judge that based on whether it seems to be protecting your against your risk of sunburn or making it worse. So if it's making it worse, I would consider that a bad sign. If it's protecting against your risk of sunburn, then I think it's probably just decreasing the need for melanin and they're therefore decreasing 
uh, melanin production because you need less of it, which I don't think is a problem. All right, hope that helps, Anonymous. Thank you for your question. Looks like we got two more questions here, and then we're done. Anonymous says, I get a niacin flush after taking only 50 milligrams of niacin. Is this normal? And does it indicate anything if you flush at lower doses than most people? Um, I wouldn't say it's normal, but uh, it's it's within the variation, the range of variation of, of uh, what is not pathological. Uh, it's not the first time I've heard that. I've heard of people who flush on less, although that's not typical. Um, I would see if it's glycine responsive. If it is, then that might just be like uh, you're not clearing nicotinic acid rapidly enough because your glycine levels are low. Um, but otherwise, it might be related to, well, if you're on a keto diet, it could just be because your BHB levels are high and BHB shares the niacin, the nicotinic acid receptor. Um Otherwise, it might just be like a genetic variation or something else in your metabolism that I'm not sure what it is that's increasing the responsiveness of that pathway, but I don't know what it would be. So uh, number one, see if glycine helps. Number two, if you're on keto, that might be a an ex- part of the explanation. Um, but overall, I wouldn't consider it a problem, uh, even though it's not typical. I would just consider it... Um, you know, you're particularly sensitive to niacin, so are quite a number of other people, but you're on the higher than normal end of the range for sensitivity. All right. I hope that helps Anonymous. Um, Anonymous says, what supplements can degrade vitamin D? Uh, the other fat-soluble vitamins in general will contribute to the degradation of vitamin D. Phosphorus would increase its turnover. Um, those would be the main things. Thank you, Anonymous, for your question. Alicia C. has snuck in the actual last question. Alicia says, do you generally like to see RBC magnesium and whole blood manganese higher up in their ranges? Thanks for all the education. Uh, our, I mean, probably on the higher end of normal would probably be better, but I don't have any specific reason to say they should be on the higher end of normal. Um, so for like for zinc and copper, I do have specific reasons to think the lower end of the range is marginally deficient. I don't know that for magnesium and whole blood manganese, but you know, I guess it depends on your bias. So like, your bias could be as long as you're in the normal range and there's no evidence that the normal range has deficiencies in it. Then who cares? Um, but it's not unreasonable to have the bias that. In the absence of knowledge, I'd rather be on the higher end of the range because these are essential nutrients. And generally speaking, as long as you're not in a toxic range, more of an essential nutrient is usually good. Um, So I'd rather be on the upper half than the lower half, but I don't have specific reasons for those nutrients to say you definitely want to be out of a certain lower part of the normal range. All right. Hope that helps. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. It was great hanging out with you again and have a great night. See you next time.